Okay, so this startup idea I have, I don't know if it makes sense, but it's like, imagine reCAPTCHA, but for managing gig work. So there's a problem now where as more and more work becomes gig work, there are potential issues of quality. You don't know if your gig workers are actually doing a good job. What if you could farm out the management of that to other gig workers in a like reCAPTCHA-like style where you have people kind of like supervising it and they like say this person did a good job or this person didn't do a good job and you could even like abstract that out over to like multiple levels so you could have people supervising the supervisors you could basically have like decentralized discipline um you're democratizing supervision and the upside of that is that everyone is also like a manager as well as being a worker and so they can't unionize right and so yeah so this is my idea i almost feel like it might be too real like it might actually <laughs> exist so i don't know if that makes sense to like do a fake pitch so yeah yeah i don't know uh jathan what's your idea for a fake startup it is a it's a it's a good idea for a startup but i do i think uh a16z would like they would actually fund that right <laughs> like <laughs> uh like that like yeah. all right so if, if we're trying to like do a like a satire startup for the cold open right um what all right what if what if instead you know i'm i'm pitching uh my startup to to tm capital and you know i'm starting off about you know this very progressive sounding language about the problem of wage theft you know we keep hearing about wage theft in the economy it's this problem in industry you know wage wage theft is happening all over the place and i'm pitching this solution but as i keep going as i keep talking as the pitch gets further you realize what i actually mean is uh workers stealing wages from companies right that wage theft is just in the eye of the beholder uh, uh, you know how the, I mean how's that sound for a startup it, it's maybe may, maybe a bit too close to real honestly yeah I feel like a lot of startups already do pitch it like that right like I, I don't know yeah. it's too realistic <laughs> there's too, yeah you know you have to we have to make it a little bit more fantastical like what else can you steal from a worker that they wouldn't normally steal right now their blood maybe you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, you can get a startup and call it Dracula, and it's just you know people getting blood taken and sold to blood banks. You know, that's something. That's something. <laughs> hey, we'll go back to the drawing board on on that one. On, on the China. Trying to satirize these startups. Uh, on, on, Jeremy, you got something. Oh, I've got something, but I know I won't get anybody to invest in this because this just goes against everything that they uh, stand for. All right, what you is know, it? Uh, you know, Wendy, Wendy knows all about these, all these uh, what seem like organized, just like smash and grab of like Burberry and like uh, the Gucci store in San Francisco. This is my app. It's called Heister. So you can find other like-minded individuals that want to steal stuff from a Nordstrom Rack or a Saks Fifth Avenue, but you only got two or three friends. Get on Heister. You can find 20 other like-minded individuals. Man, go get the best clothes you've ever had in your entire life. Don't pay a cent for it. And then you make friends along the way. <laughs> no, that's too cool. Yeah, they would it's, never fund that. 
It's too cool. It's too good. Uh, and also, the FBI is already building their RICO case against that app. You know, I'm I'm disrupting. Uh, I'm disrupting looting. You know, organized. It's, uh, it's it's too good, Jeremy. We're trying to satirize stuff, not come up with stuff that TM Capital would actually fund. <laughs> All right, Ed, hit us with it. I really, you know, I really think Dracula, you know, was something. We know, we know that Peter Thiel is already doing uh, blood, or allegedly uh, doing uh, blood transfusions, um, or invest interested in blood transfusions from young individuals. Um, so why not have maybe a, a service, a peer-to-peer platform, where you state a need, you know, blood. Um, young blood and and a willing donor creates a profile their interests their phenotypic uh their phenotypes and their phrenology uh their genealogy genetic history um and you know you go on a date not a date you know but you go on a you go on a little coffee meet and greet or whatever the fuck it is a little lunch and see if you want their blood you know <laughs> All right, and if you do, it. then the platform gets ten percent of the transaction. <laughs> that's the one. That's the one. <laughs> TM Capital is going all in on Dracula. <laughs> yeah, I heard. I heard Henry Kissinger is on the board. Yeah, I, yeah. He would be him, Elizabeth Holmes, uh, one of Peter Thiel's uh, proxies. You know, I think it would, I think it's a good time to get in on the ground floor. Ground floor, ground floor. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 129 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And it's our first new episode of the new year, 2022. We are very happy to be joined by three-time returning guests, taking taking the trophy, most returns uh, so far of any other guest, Wendy Liu. Uh, so happy to have you back. Uh, y'all, y'all, y'all already know who Wendy is, author of Abolish Silicon Valley, a very great book that we talk about, you know, constantly pick it up. Um, you know, Wendy, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Really happy to be back. All right. So, uh, just, just before we get rolling with, with the episode, you know, we got a lot to talk about. We're going to do a little bit of a retrospective of the year, the year in tech of 2021, a little bit of a prospective of what's to come. But yeah. All right. So 
for the for the cold open, we were we were racking our brains so hard, like actually trying to come up with a bit where it's like Wendy's pitching a startup to TM Capital, right? It's gonna be some Elizabeth Holmes style stuff, right? Wendy was even gonna put on a bit of a fake Elizabeth Holmes uh, deep voice, you know, and and Ed and Jeremy and I were gonna be, you know, very pensive venture capitalists. But every single fucking idea we came up with to satirize a startup, just like, no, <laughs> it's too real. It's too, right. that's already happening. That's already real. People are already investing in it. People would invest in it. It's, this shit is impossible to parody, which is maybe, uh, like maybe that's the tagline of tech in 2021. This shit is impossible to parody. Uh, and, and also, I think then that raises the question like, well, I mean, we know why, right? We know why. Because they're in a bubble of, you know, that's uh, diverged from reality and it doesn't help that they have billions of dollars behind them. So uh, oftentimes things that do get funded are things that leave us asking, like, why the fuck did anyone put money behind that, right? Like, why did someone put uh, $20 million into a startup that said it was going to gentrify uh, trailer park homes. I mean, they didn't put 20 million, but you know, as an example, right? Like, why is that an idea that would get any money? And it's because, uh, they're not for better lack of, for to flatten it. They just don't live in the same reality at a certain point. Right. Or don't, and, and don't need to. Wendy's living in the heart of the alternative yeah. universe. The, <laughs> right the, in the center the, of Babylon. The, the metaverse made physical. <laughs> I'm not talking about crypto land. Talking about San Francisco. <laughs> Have you gotten your uh, your Ray Ban stories yet? Yeah, yeah, and I got a really big <laughs> haul from the Louis Vuitton store. It's really good. Yeah. Using that Heister app. That's up. That's what's exactly. Up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. When we were talking about the you know the topic for this episode, right? We were we were discussing you know what what is tech? What has tech looked like in 2021? You know, and and yeah, you know, it's the first episode of the new year, so we do have to do a little bit of a retrospective as a way of looking forward. But this is it feels like you know this has been a this has been the long the long century you know all wrapped up in one year or the last two years right where it's just like it seems like a lot of chickens have come home to roost uh, you know I mean you look back what it was only you know it, it was only last March where like GameStop uh, took off right that seems like ages ago that seems like multiple phases of civilization ago that GameStop was a thing and then everything that's flowing from that around like NFTs you know uh, Web3, DAOs, crypto uh, you know uh, some a lot of this stuff was like created in 2021 but it's like it boomed it took off in 2021 in a way that it hasn't before uh, I mean to the point where it's like you know, we on TMK have already done a couple episodes about Web3 type of stuff. You know, uh, Ed, it, it'd probably be out already, but Ed and I just guested on Trash Future where we were also talking about Web3 uh, stuff. And and it, it feels like I've been talking about Web3 forever, even though it's only been like a month that I've been seriously thinking about and talking about Web3. And leading up to that, I was so against 
uh, ever having to engage seriously with this shit. Like I remember like, I didn't even know what, I would not have even known what web three was if not for Twitter. Um, but now it just seems like it's all anybody can talk about. Um, and everybody has to have a take on it. And, and I don't know. It just, it feels like there's this like an acceleration of bullshit an acceleration of discourse where ideas bubble up and they reach like maximum saturation at such an exponential rate that I would not be surprised if in a few months people have forgotten about Web3, they've moved on to talking about something else, and it just feels like a rat race. You know, I mean, part of it is because it is, right? I think like there's a lot, you know, we've been trying to earnestly look at what are some of the things that are exciting people about the web 3.0 space and it is hard to sift the bullshit from um nuggets of things that would be interesting partly because like what people have been talking about you know i saw recently saw a tweet from uh evgeny morzov about it but about how there's been like a lot a lot of the discussion is about what these things will do and that ends up being the case specifically for some of the most like extravagant vehicles of speculation, right? NFTs um, in particular, but also a lot of the crypto uh, coins and tokens, a lot of the projects with DAOs, not all of them, but a lot of them are talking about how they will create um, a liquidity pool so that they can invest, so that they can provide more returns to investors or how they're going to take over this real world asset or how they're going to generate, you know, huge returns by creating like a new financial instrument, you know, a lot of, or they're going to create bond, recreate bonds or recreate some other asset that's in the real world. A lot of it is just like when you look really closely, it's figuring out how to privatize something again at a, at a return rate that's, or privatize things at a, uh, in a way so that they get a higher return on the investment than they might otherwise parking their money elsewhere. And it's hard to figure out what would then actually be like a novel uh, technical development, something that actually decentralizes both in nature and also would have like a useful political deployment. And I haven't, I don't feel like we're seeing a lot of it. We're just f- seeing a lot of people like this will make us money. This will make us a lot of money. Um, and repeating the same sort of, you know, narratives, talking points, terms back to one another and each other and us. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I do think it's maybe worth trying to figure out some differences here, though, because there are people who are excited um, by the technical aspects. And exactly. people yeah. are excited by all sorts of technical things. They don't necessarily have to have like, it doesn't, it doesn't ha- mean that this is going to revolutionize everything, but, you know, people are excited by a new JavaScript framework or, um, I don't know, some, some new programming language. Mm-hmm. And that is quite valid. And I do think that because people are excited by Web3, there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of especially young people going into it being like, I want to do something cool here. Mm-hmm. That could just mean there will be a lot of innovation. I think we're stuck with it, whether we like it or not. But in yeah. terms of the speculation, I do think that is quite a separate matter. And that is the more dangerous side of it because if it was just about like young technologists trying out this new platform and trying to build new things that would be quite a different matter than if there was all this money flowing through this in the hopes of making a return on investment and so i think the fact that we have those two things at once makes it quite dangerous but at the same time i mean you know being here in san francisco i feel like a lot of people are still very excited by the technical side of things um and and maybe they're kind of interested in the the like the possibility of making a lot of money. But at the same time, I mean, 
if you compare the Web3 space and all of the like scams and silliness there to the legitimate companies that are here, I don't think that there's that much of a leap. Like if, if your day job is, I don't know, you work at like Salesforce or Google or something, and it's like you, you are aware where your money comes from. You know it comes from like B2B SaaS or advertising or something else that feels very intangible and also doesn't feel like it's creating a lot of value in the world. I can understand how you could look at NFTs or DAOs and think, oh, well, I could do something that's maybe a little bit sillier, but really not that much more, and that it could seem as a fairly legitimate thing. And this is neither to condemn nor excuse. I just think it is worth noting the context that a lot of people are working in, which is that uh, this whole tech economy is pretty much just bullshit, for lack of a better word. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't actually need to be made. There's a lot of wealth that is quite spurious. There's a lot of stuff happening that doesn't really correspond to um, material need. And so I think the fact that um, a lot of these like Web3 speculative financial instruments are appealing to people, I, I think it is rooted in the fact that the economy as a whole is kind of a scam. And so it doesn't really seem like there's that much of a difference. And so I think maybe it's that's just like a way to kind of like have a little more empathy for the people who are doing these things, not that they necessarily need it, but I, I do think like they're not just individuals making irrational decisions. I think they're making like fairly rational decisions based on what the economy as a whole looks like. And then on the other side of that, I think the people who are, you know, engaging in these, um, in what are essentially scams or like trying to invest in things that might not turn into anything. I think that there's again, this like larger political, economic, social context where a lot of the people who are drawn to these things, it's because they can't see any other path toward financial stability. And I think there's an echo here in um, the way the financial crash played out in like 2000, 2009, 2010, where the gig economy really took off then. And part of that was the way they marketed these jobs as, um, you know, like an entrepreneurial thing where you could just take a bit of a risk, but then you'd make a lot of money and you'd be totally set. And I think a lot of these like crypto scams are doing some, a similar thing where they're preying on the fact that people don't really have a lot of, uh, you know, great financial prospects. And maybe if they just invested in the right token or bought up the right like piece of artwork or whatever, then they're, it's going to give them something. And it's like, it's, yeah, I totally understand why people would go for that. It's just because we've made the economy so lopsided and everything just like sucks so much that on the one hand you have like people who have too much free time and are, you know, who have all this money and they're like, Oh, I want to, I want to work on something that like feels a little more interesting and maybe gives me a little more money. And, and so they're drawn towards like the building side of it. And then you have people who have so little money and have so little um, likelihood of being able to have any sort of stability that they're drawn towards, you know, the, the like bottom side of these things. And so they're, and so you have these like two factors I think are contributing towards the fact that um, web three and decentralized finance, whatever you want to call it, it's taking up more and more attention and it's creeping into more and more people's lives. And, you know, I mean, just like, to be fair, I think that there are some good critiques that are embedded in decentralized finance as like a concept, right? Like I think, sure. Fuck the banks. Like let's uh, critique uh, Western union and like American express and whatever, as much as we want. I think that's totally fair. But at the same time, I mean, do the people building these, DeFi alternatives, do they have like a materialist analysis of why these institutions act the way they do? I don't think they do, or at least not embedded enough in practice. What it really feels like to me is so like there was a time a lot of the consumer goods in the United States that we got were being made in 
like Japan or being made in like Vietnam or in, in many cases where, you know, sweat, sweatshop conditions, like, you know, every pair of Nikes that anybody's ever owned has probably been made in some situation like that. But there are always this just like blatant disregard to the fact that your consumer goods came from these horrible conditions. But I feel like now that the people who products like that were marketed to back then are becoming more and more the folks that are on the precipice of becoming those sweatshop workers. You know, they're, they're having to learn like on the fly, they're having to learn the type of empathy you need to have for other workers. But I think it's coming at a moment that's too late because we still live in a society where you have to, you know, if you're, if there's two people drowning and the only way you're going to survive is by standing on someone else's head, you're taught to do that and not to try to help pull the other person up. I think it's very interesting analogy here as well, where, you know, it, and it kind of, it's indicative of a broader shift from a, uh, like the con- kind of consumerist society of like the nineties versus what we live in now, which is very much of, you know, a, a service based economy. Right. And, you know, but the, the, the analogy here is that like with the consumerist, uh, you know, society, uh, you know, that's, th- those cheap goods had to be made somewhere. Right. And they were off, you know, offshored and outsourced to, you know, unseen sweatshops. And, but with the service economy, like that stuff largely has to be local, right? It, like it's a, you know, it has to be food delivery for someone that is like geographically, uh, and temporally close to you. Uh, you know, it is that kind of, and, and so what we end up seeing is a kind of, uh, uh, an onshoring, uh, but decentralization of the sweatshop, right? I mean, that's what the gig economy is, right? It's, it's, it's access to servants. Right. Um, and, 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 but fundamentally, like the capitalist dynamics have not changed, even as the overarching, like, mode of the economy from one that's primarily based on consum- consuming, uh, goods to consuming services. Uh, while that has changed, the, the underlying dynamics have not. And I think, you know, that does get to a lot of what we're, what we're seeing and what we're living with. And, and what you were talking about, Wendy, also brings to mind the, um, you know, in our conversations with Vina Dubal uh, and, and a, a paper that Vina wrote called, you know, Wage Slave or Entrepreneur, right? And, and it's based on her ethnographic work with like taxi drivers um, in San Francisco, and, you know, and, and drawing on that as well, an analysis of then like, you know, ride hailing drivers, Uber drivers, and so on and so forth, where, you know, a lot of the people that she, that Vina talked to, and especially immigrants, you know, driving these taxis and so on, saw themselves as entrepreneurs, right? They were like, this is, I own my own business, right? In a, in a way, I, I am a, a small business owner. I'm an entrepreneur. Um, and, and it's like, you know, I've escaped being a wage slave, uh, and now I'm an entrepreneur, but like at fundamentally that seems to be more of an, uh, not a material shift in circumstances, but, uh, an ideological shift in circumstances, right? And like, that's all that we get, right? Is we get, we get the, we get a, a, a shift in terms of idealism, not a shift in terms of materialism. Um, and, and I, I, can't help but think as well, you know, laying out 
what you were talking about, Wendy, as well. Like part of this is also a, 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 a different side of David Graeber's bullshit job thesis, right? Where, you know, Graeber famously talks about bullshit jobs and he talks about it more in terms of like these, uh, jobs, these jobs that chain people to bureaucracies, right? They simultaneously make you alienated, but also completely dependent on the system that's alienating you, right? You're just a pencil pusher. You're just doing, uh, you know, you're inputting data from one spreadsheet into another spreadsheet, right? It's these jobs that like people know are pointless that ha and, and don't give them any sense of purpose in life, but they do it for a meager paycheck because they have to. Um, but on the flip side of that as well, uh, it's very interesting to think about like a lot of people in the tech sector also have bullshit jobs, but they have bullshit jobs that have given them a, a lot of money and stock options and a lot of free time and a sense of superiority over everybody else. And so what do they do with that, with, with their bullshit jobs is the only thing they know how to do is create more bullshit, right? In the form of like vaporware, um, that they can then pedal and push. Uh, you know, it, it's all built on sand, as you've put it, Wendy. And I, I'm just now remembering the last time you were here. Uh, I think it was the episode with you and Jason. You talked about then as well that like a lot of tech is is essentially just sandcastles in the sky, right? Like, and I think that analysis continues to hold. But I think it's also very interesting to see um, when when people in tech realize that it's all sandcastles in the sky and but instead of trying to do something about it, they're like, well, maybe I'll, maybe I can be one of the grifters too, right? Maybe I can build my own sandcastles and get other, and, and, and get other people to buy into it. These kind of dichotomies, right? Like wage slave or entrepreneur, I think also lead to others, right? Of like, are you a high roller or are you a mark, right? Which is a lot of the kind of casino economy around like NFTs or crypto is based on, right? Or, uh, I think with like a lot of the web three stuff as well, it's like, are you uh, a, a grifter or a useful idiot? Right. And, and it can be like really difficult to tell the difference between these two groups of people, people who know that what they're doing is a grift, that they're just, you know, peddling a scam that they're going to, uh, you know, and they're going to get out uh, before it, before, you know, they're going to, they're going to get out, they're going to make their money and they're going to leave before it falls back on them. Or the, the useful idiots who actually truly believe that this is like revolutionary, that this is, that NFTs and crypto and DAOs and Web3 are actually going to solve the world's problems, change the world, that they have like a true ideological adherence to it. But they, but, but these two groups of people act exactly the same. You cannot really tell unless you crawl inside their brains what, what they believe, uh, by, by looking at how they act. Yeah. I guess another way of putting that is there, there are these structural incentives and these like larger systems that shape how these, these initiatives will turn out. Right. And that's kind of the disappointing thing that, you know, even the true believers and, and, and I know there are some, there are definitely people who have interesting critiques of how these systems work and they're trying to shape it towards something better. But at the same time, there is a lot that is not up to them. There's a lot that's overdetermined by these larger forces. I think that is something that these people will have to learn the hard way. And I think another aspect, another factor that, makes all this really hard to talk about is the just the fact that there's so much money 
in this space. And it's like similar to how there's so much money in just like tech startups in general, that a big feeling that people get is FOMO. It's like, oh, there's all this money flooding into, you know, this particular kind of company or initiative, whatever. I would be foolish if I were to not try and get some of that because there's just so much of it. And it's going to all these people who are not as intelligent as I'm. Why don't I just start a thing? And I think that feeling has a way of um, overriding any other criticisms people might have and you know the more rational part of their brain that's telling them oh well this isn't really real and it just convinces people like you know it, it helps people justify what they're doing or maybe like they even if they they know what they're doing is silly it's still they're still doing it and i think that's that is what's contributing to you know the broader thing we're talking about of how everything seems to be moving so fast well, it's because, yeah, when there's so much money involved, of course it's going to. Uh, mm. People are drawn in by the money. And uh, even if they're not drawn in just by the money, the money is a very, very useful accelerant. And uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I think, Jathan you're, Jathan, you were saying that you think we will be talking about this in a few months' time. You might be right that there will be bigger things, like we might have bigger concerns to worry about. I do think that we will be talking about this, unfortunately. Mm. I think a lot of these things are here to stay. They might get better. They might get worse. Um but it doesn't feel like it's just a flash in the pan. I think there's, yeah, I don't know. This is just my, my prediction for this year, but I think we're going to be talking about Web3 for quite some time. Mm, yeah, you know, I think um, I hear that because, you know, I think also about, you know, Web2 also is like a framing mechanism, right? That was developed and talked about for a long time, even when the initial definition of it fell apart or disintegrated, even after it like changed iterations multiple times. It's still, there was still, I mean, there was friction at times, but from what I can gather from reading back on it, right, it seems like it was just constantly reconstituting itself as this new thing, right? That Web Web 2.0 Web starts out as like, okay, it's going to be like a frontier of innovation or innovative development for technologies and the internet. And then it changes to like, it's just like a type of, new gloss over previously existing technologies to, oh no, it's like a new definition. It's like each type of technology that does this very specific thing falls into Web 2.0 to then constantly like shifting in definition. So I feel like Web 3.0 is here with us, like you said, for the foreseeable future and that there's going to be a lot of attempts going forward, I think, to figure out ways either genuinely or not to integrate or make it easier for, or present it as easier to like swim in between digital and non-digital commodities, communities, spaces. And sometimes that's going to look like some of these like crypt specific like crypto projects. And sometimes that's going to look like some of these attempts to enter the metaverse. And sometimes it's probably going to look like some new type of um, service or application whether it's like, you know, one of these decentralized financial applications or whether it's like some new application, organizational principles, like the, like some, uh, some of the stuff that the DAOs promise. The question is like, do we think that, do we think that a lot of the structures that are present today, then the things that have merged today will stay and that there will just be new iterations? Like, do we think NFTs? Do we think DAOs? Do we think like, you know, some of the early ways that we're talking and envisioning and conceptualizing what web 3.0 is, is going to persist or that they'll, transform or other things on the horizon that are already promising to displace what people t consider web 3.0 right now I mean I think you both are absolutely right and, and <laughs> I think my uh, my my you know statement that you know we might not be talking about this in a few months is is 
more wishful thinking and <laughs> more of a reflection of my <laughs> own annoyance. Yeah, fingers crossed, my own annoyance of having to actually seriously engage with this. But but we are like that, you know, the the horses have bolted. We are seriously engaging with it and we have to seriously engage with it. I think more so um, you know, th- we're we're in the very beginning stages where it's a new discourse. So we are talking about it a lot. What you said, Wendy, about like the money being an accelerant jives completely with something I've been thinking about uh, for for the last couple of weeks, which is that this only exists because of the money, right? It's not just that the money is an accelerant, but the money gave birth to this. Like we wouldn't be talking about this if it weren't for, uh, you know, big venture capital firms like Andreessen Horowitz going full bore into Web3. If it weren't for, uh, you know, companies like Facebook and Microsoft and Tencent, like going full bore on the metaverse, right? Like, like a lot of this is very much uh, artificially manufactured in the same exact way that Web 2.0 was, right? Like, you know, all you have to do is go back and read um, Evgeny Morozov's magisterial, uh, uh, you know, profile and uh, of Tim O'Reilly in The Baffler called The Meme Hustler, where, you know, Web 2.0 was a fiction created in the mind of Tim O'Reilly and propagated through, you know, the O'Reilly media empire, all of the conferences and uh, blog posts and news sites and, you know, his two million Twitter followers and blah, blah, blah. Like, but it took hold, right? And it took hold in a massive way. And like, you know, his original paper from like 2007 or whatever, outlining what Web 2.0 is, I just looked at it yesterday, has over 17,000 citations to it, right? So it's like, you know, that, that, that's massive. That's absolutely massive. But it's also like we can kind of pin, we can draw it back to one single person or, or one single group of thought leaders with, you know, but in this case, it was a media empire, which I think is very interesting about Web3 that we can kind of draw it back to a big, you know, a group of thought leaders who are not people like Tim O'Reilly, but are people like, Andreessen and Horowitz, right? Venture capitalists, um, and CEOs, right? People like Zuckerberg. But, but yeah, I mean, I think this is why it's accelerated so quickly is that there's just a lot of money. And I, your analysis in terms of FOMO also strikes me as completely correct, Wendy, as well, where it's like, you don't want, you don't want to be the person. I mean, this is the whole discourse around crypto. This is what like the Winklevoss twins are constantly tweeting out, right? Of like, you got to get in now. This is what like, you know, Jacob Silverman at New Republic is like on this beat. Uh, and all you have to do is follow him on Twitter to con- to see how they talk about crypto uh, in terms of like, you got to get in on this now. If you're not getting in on it now, you're losing out. You're a loser. You're, you're leaving money on the table. Everyone you know is getting rich from this because they're getting in on it, right? Uh, like that, there's this, there's this sense of urgency around this that you have to do it now. Uh, and that's really what's driving this forward is that like manufactured, you know, well, it manufactured consent around like Web3 is here to stay and it's not going anywhere. I, I think at the very least, 
uh, it may become more like Web 2.0 in a much quicker fashion where it's around and all the, all the constituent parts of it are around, but we don't talk about it in terms, like we don't talk about Web 2.0 anymore. We talk about specific companies and dynamics and relationships and all of that stuff. And I, I, I think that's probably what Web 3 will become. And, you know, where we don't talk about Web 3, but we talk about Web 3 without talking about it. And I wonder how quickly that will happen. Yeah, but Jathan, hear me out. What about Web3 in the metaverse? What if when you were mm-hmm. shopping f- shopping at Walmart in the metaverse and you're picking up something from the shelf, you're actually getting an NFT? <laughs> Please no. Please no. Uh, as long as I can sell that NFT. I'm just trying to get NFTs to feed my family. And you, and you, and you have the gall to look down on me. I'm just trying to feed my kids <laughs> with these NFTs. <laughs> Yeah, I'm envisioning, uh, you go to Walmart, everybody, it's kind of like a race. You start at the entrance and then there's a green line, three, two, one, and you have to race through the metaverse depiction of Walmart, pulling NFTs that you want out of the cart and then taking them to the checkout alley. And that's the transaction. And if you don't get them there before someone else does, you're shit out of luck. Someone can steal them out of your car. You know, that could be, that could be a fun little, what are those, the play, the earn to play games or the play to earn games, right? Mm. But I mean, (laughs) which if you don't know, listener games where you play them to earn uh, crypto or money, but really it's just like a form of sharecropping because you have to pay thousands of dollars to be able to enter the game in the first place. Mm -hmm. This is like some Dave and Buster's bullshit. (laughs) <laughs> it's, 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 it's Busters. Yeah, it's Chuck E. Cheese meets Supermarket Sweep. Right? <laughs> like, but but it, that is actually how it already works. Though, have, if have you if you've tried to buy a PS5 or a GPU, you know it's impossible because there are already there are already bots that are immediately snatching up all that shit the moment it drops on on you know some uh, retailer's website and then reselling it on eBay for like five times markup, right? And it's the same thing that's happening now with like COVID tests, like rapid antigen tests. Like like that is the economy is that it's it's supermarket sweep, but it's like you need a bot swarm to, to rush in, get all the stuff, and then you're, you know, in the parking lot opening up your trunk and being like yo i heard i heard y'all were looking for gpus ps5s rapid antigen test i got it all right here you know that like that is a lot of how it works already and see that's why the heister app is perfect for situations like this you want a ps5 (laughs) you want a covid rapid test but can't find one and you know someone's whoring them get together you and some of your buddies go bust another joint take their shit Oh, yes. I'm trying. I'm trying to be Omar from The Wire, but for Web three. <laughs> I, I think that's good, but I think you guys are all missing the like clear entrepreneurial solution, where you just like hire a bunch of people in the Philippines and you make them do your like metaverse stuff for you, and then you just become like an entrepreneur. And if you you know if you have a bunch of like paid to pay to earn games or whatever, just like hire people to do it for you. And yeah, then, then you're set. And you know, if anyone else wants to do that, they, they can just hire their own click farm. Yeah. I think this is a solution valid for everyone. Oh yeah. Didn't Steve Bannon do this? Wasn't that one of his early g- griffs was like, he ran like a, like a world of Warcraft gold farming 
um, business where it literally was, I think it was like people in China doing like gold farming. And then like, he was like selling the gold, uh, for like, you know, for fiat, uh, to, to people. So everything that's old, everything that's old is new again. <laughs> always. I mean, always, that's how it always is. Right. Uh, we're just reinventing the wheel of suffering all the time. Right. And maybe, maybe we can break the wheel. That's what we want to do. That's what we're hoping to do. Looking back on 2021, a lot of this, a lot, of everything that we've just talked about, like if you had, if you had said any of this to me, you know, 12 months ago, I would, I would have been looking at you dead eyed, like what the fuck are you talking about? I don't know what any of this means, and now I regretfully know what all of it means uh, because that, I mean, that's tech in 2021. It is also very interesting as well, though, to see some of the dissenting voices as come like very quickly coming up like you know th this is the kind of other the flip side of the acceleration of the of the discourses around innovation i think this is also key as well where so much of innovation now is discursive right it's not really uh technical or technological first right it's 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 marketing first it's discourse first it's ideology first which is also one reason why it's able to move so quickly like a like a mind virus right like you don't actually have to do a lot of stuff you don't have to build a lot of stuff you can talk in the future tense of DAOs will do this nfts will do this right and it becomes very quickly to kind of like you know uh manifest that into existence like you know it's it, silicon valley is just doing the secret right now and that's what we all have to talk about is them doing the secret on the flip side of that as well i think is there there is an acceleration of critical analysis and pushback against this as well because it is moving so fast, you see a lot of dissenting voices like in the tech sector itself kind of coming up that you didn't really see in the, the halcyon days of Web 2.0, or at least you didn't see it as, as, as vocally and as like centrally placed in the belly of the beast. Um, so like I'm thinking of, uh, you know, this, this blog post that just came out, like, uh, you know, uh, uh uh, a few days ago um, by Moxie Marlinspike, who is the creator of Signal, right? And like the co-founder of the Signal Foundation and stuff. And, you know, for people who don't know, right, Signal is a an encrypted messaging app, right? It's, it's all you know, about putting like cryptography and security and privacy first. Um, and, you know, it's, it's like the, the, one of one of the only of these like messaging apps that I feel like actually okay about using, uh, but like it's very interesting to see um, the the creator of Signal write this blog post on his website that you know it's just very anodyne titled "My First Impressions of Web 3. But then when you go down, it, it's it's a very critical take from a very different position than the standard or typical like tech critic or even like people like us that are doing more like 
political economy, materialist analysis of tech. Instead, what you're getting from Moxie Marlin Spike is really this kind of like, what's actually going on here? How is this? What's the architecture of Web3? actually look like how is this actually working um let me play around with it right to actually get a little bit of a hands-on experience of like what it means to like create an nft uh what it means to engage with these kinds of technologies you know long story short with this with this blog post which is well worth reading you know it's it's pretty succinct but you know it's it's a uh the conclusion he kind of comes to is one that we've talked about, all of us have talked about before, is that this is like stealth centralization, right? There's, when you dig down into it, there seems to be actually nothing decentralized about it. And remember, decentralization is the, is the watchword for Web3. That's what it's meant to be bringing to our lives. But there seems to be nothing decentralized about it. Like there's only a few, uh, you know, centralized clearinghouses for NFTs, right? Like open seas or, or if you want to do a distributed app, adapt, right? You got to, you know, connect to your wallet like MetaMask or, you know, there's only a few of these platforms, um, that have, uh, a lot of control uh, over these seemingly decentralized assets. And I don't know, I just want to throw it over to you, Wendy, because you have a much more technical insight um, into a lot of this stuff than Ed and I do. Uh, you know, you are an, you are an actual engineer um, and technologist. I found it really interesting to, to read kind of Moxie Marlin Spike's take on this, but I'm curious, like, what, what are your impressions of his kind of, uh, of his impressions? Yeah, I mean, I don't have too much to add to that. I think it was a it was a good blog post, um, and he's clearly done his research. I personally not really dabble too much in the Web three space. It's just, it's you know, it's not where my interests are. I think, um, I, yeah, I think his critiques all seem very valid. Um, maybe the the one thing I would add there is like, it 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 did feel like he was trying to thread a needle between saying like, here are the problems of the space right now, but also it is possible that things will evolve. I do think things could evolve in possibly in worse ways, possibly in good ways. I think maybe what's really disturbing is just because there's so much money poured into this space right now, it's almost as if it's um, there's too much money for things to fail gracefully, right? There's too much at stake for things to just be solved like slowly and like fixed and for things to just like, kind of like naturally get better. There's too much at stake. Uh, there are billions of dollars of like people's investment at stake. And so the, their incentive is not really to like take the slow and measured approach to actually fixing problems and like making it work. Their, their incentive is to just make a lot of money. And usually that's not done by making things stable or making things actually um, solve the problem of decentralizing finance. Like you're, you can't really make a lot of money through actually decentralizing finance. A lot of what these people are trying to do is like decentralize it a little bit, then recentralize it so that they benefit. And I think that is the thing that's worth keeping in mind because I'm, you know, I, I know a lot of people who are interested in these technologies and I think like good for them. I think people should be interested in like figuring out how to make these technologies technologies useful. But I do think it's so important to remember that there are these financial interests at stake in this space. And, you know, it's in a way it's analogous to the problems of the internet as a whole. And just like all of this um, software, digital infrastructure, there is so much money that is on the line that um, when you have some sort of like security vulnerability or some other thing, like some issue with a protocol or, 
just like some piece of open source software has this bug that hasn't been fixed for a while, it, it can, it can scale out really quickly and have a massive impact. And I just, it doesn't feel like anything is being built with the intention of making it last or with the intention of making it like actually secure and useful for people. Instead, there's all this money that just requires things to, that requires the circuits of capital accumulation to keep moving, right? Just so that, that these financial actors can make their, make their money. And you see a lot of potential collateral damage. And I think what we're going to see with Web3 is that you're going to see the same incentives in play. And there are probably all these issues that like the people who actually care about this stuff, that they probably want to do something a certain way, but then are they going to be able to do that? Or will some A16Z backed company come out and be like, we're going to do it this way. And we're cent- we're centralizing all this stuff and there's nothing you can do because you don't have money. So I think, yeah, as the space gets more mature, there's probably going to be a lot more conflict between the people who are actually ideological and who actually have maybe even like a really cool approach and like interesting philosophies about how to build this stuff and the people who are more like, well, we have the money and we're just going to have to do what our investors want us to do. And I don't really know how that will play out, but I, I do feel like that's something worth keeping an eye on because I, I, you know, I don't think the space is monolithic. I think there are a lot of people drawn to it for different reasons, but you know, we're, we're all good materialists here. We understand that there's a such thing as power and that power is shaped by the broader political economic context. And so I think that's something we'll have to remember um, in 2022 as we watch stuff happening in this space. I want to read a couple um, sections from Moxie's uh, post that I thought were really interesting and really hi- kind of highlight a lot of what you've said and what, you know, are what we've been broadly saying for a while now. Um, and it's always just interesting to see it coming from different people who have very different positions and their very different stances on this. I mean, the, the exactly what you were just saying as well. Um, Wendy Yomoxi writes, as long as, quote, as long as software requires such concerted energy and so much highly specialized human focus, I think it will have the tendency to serve the interest of the people sitting in that room every day rather than what we may consider our broader goals. I think this is a timeless fact that we so readily forget that this stuff is built to serve particular sets of interests and it's going to be serving the interest of the people who are spending a lot of time and money and energy and effort into building it right like that that's just fundamentally uh the an empirical fact in terms of like the existing way that these that that software uh, construction and, and and creation is organized right now right or technological innovation is organized or investment and venture capital is organized right it's organized around uh some you know uh, ensuring that it it meets the interest of the people who are spending the time who have the ability and the capital to spend time doing it. And there, there was a couple really striking uh, paragraphs in this that I, I want to read and then we can, we can discuss. So, you know, uh, Moxie writes, quote, so much work, energy, and time has gone into creating a trustless distributed consensus mechanism, but virtually all clients that wish to access it do so by simply trusting the outputs from these two companies. And here he's talking about companies that are the kind of like, um, you know, platforms for these decentralized apps that have to be built on, right? Infura or Alchemy um, to interact with blockchain have to kind of go through these companies. And so he's saying, he goes on to say, 
right? But virtually all clients that wish to access it do so by simply trusting the outputs from these two companies without any further verification. It also doesn't seem like the best privacy situation. Imagine if every time you interacted with a website in Chrome, your request first went to Google before being routed to the destination and back. That's the situation with Ethereum today. All write traffic is obviously already public on the blockchain, but these companies also have visibility into almost all read requests from almost all users in almost all decentralized applications or dApps. So right there, right? There's, there's a stealth centralization um, built into this because it relies on a, a few intermediaries who have complete visibility over both read and write uh, re request um, but but they don't share that visibility to everybody else and they and, and and you don't really you know the apps are built in such a way as to make you think that they're decentralized to not realize there's this these centralized uh, clearing houses or intermediaries and then he goes on to say, I think this is a very similar, this is very similar to the situation with email. I can run my own mail server, but it doesn't functionally matter for privacy, censorship, resistance, or control because Gmail is going to be on the other end of every email that I send or receive anyway. Once a distributed ecosystem centralizes around a platform for convenience, it becomes the worst of both worlds. Centralized control, but still distributed enough to become mired in time. I can build my own NFT marketplace, but it doesn't offer any additional control if OpenSea mediates the view of all NFTs in the wallet people use and every other app in the ecosystem. I want to pull out something that he doesn't really get to. He's like kind of dancing around, but a broader point he doesn't really get to is that I think this really pinpoints the, uh, the, the kind of libertarian fantasies of replacing society with a decentralized frontier and why they're doomed to fail, right? Why they are vaporware. And it's because they have this atomistic view of a fundamentally relational world. Their ideology and their technology is at base incompatible with society, right? It, 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 they imagine a, a world where they can act as these like libertarian, uh, you know, e you know, economic, technological, uh, you know, monads. Um, but they, but they look beyond, but they don't look at the fact that, uh, it doesn't matter if you run your own mail server, if every person you interact with is going through Gmail, for example, right? Because at the end of the day, well, Gmail is the center of that ecosystem and you're just building a node on their network, right? Like, like it doesn't matter if you, uh, try to run something decentralized when we live in a world that is fundamentally relational. Uh, and, 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 and I mean, that, that is ultimately the insight of dialectics, right? Is that everything is a relation that's not just event, it's all process. Um, but. I think it also really shows why a lot of things like crypto land are so silly on their base, right? Or on their face, um, because they're trying to merge a kind of like, you know, uh, seasteading with Disneyland, right? But at the end of the day, it's like they still have to exist in a society. Uh, you know, they still have to exist 
um, in, in a, in a, a technological ecosystem that has, you know, a lot of gravity around large platforms. Um, and, and that, you know, these platforms have established themselves as intermediaries for all traffic, for all interactions, for all transactions. Um, and you can build, you know, ecosystems around that, but it doesn't escape the problem. It doesn't solve the problem, right? It's fundamentally trying to stick your head in the sand um, and ignore what already exists. Yeah, and I think maybe another way of looking at it is like, part of the reason people are drawn to initiatives like this is because they seem tractable. They, they seem like people are looking around and realizing that society is crumbling, things are bad. You know, it's, it's pretty hard to feel optimistic about anything. And I think um, it's quite natural for a lot of people of a technical bend, especially to be attracted to these projects that try to reduce the world to simple enough terms that it's just all about like building certain software and like collaborating on a small scale because the larger problems of political change, they just seem too hard to tackle. And so, you know, in a way, I kind of sympathize with people who are like, oh, well, the world is shit, but maybe I can just like fix things by building this like DeFi project, whatever. It's like, yeah, that's, that is a fairly optimistic way of looking at it. And because, you know, it is an expression of someone wanting to do something to make the world better, but just not really seeing any possibility for doing that, um, in any other realm other than like technology and building new software. And even as much as I think that it's doomed to fail on its own, I do think that there is some kind of like beautiful spirit there. And I just wish that people would figure out how to harness that spirit and put it in ways and like direct it towards causes that have, you know, like a better analysis of what's actually happening and, you know, a better theory of change for how, things will actually get better. Cause I, you know, I, I don't think that just like building a few DeFi projects will actually tackle the larger problems of the financial system. But I also don't necessarily like want to discourage people who want to try that. I just think like, how can you do that while also recognizing that there are other bigger things that need to change. Um, and that these bigger things will need a lot of people and not just a few technologists in a room. You'll need people who are working in all of these different places all around the world to kind of like come together and figure out a way to change the way society works. And like, that's a much bigger project. It's a much harder project. And so totally understand why people are like, Oh yeah, I don't know how to do that. But at the same time, I think like, if we want to be realistic about what it's going to take to transform society for the better, that is going to be necessary. It's not going to be just like a few crypto bros, building something and like making, f making jokes amongst themselves about how cool they are and like living on an Island. Like that's not enough. And I would hope people who are interested in those kinds of projects are able to recognize that and are able to set their ambitions towards something a little bit broader than these like insular involuted communities. I think then that also raises a question as we've talked about a few times about like the structures that seem to underwrit almost everything that's happening right now in any of these technical spaces. I mean, what then ends up being the path forward? Is it like trying to develop s s tiny spaces where workers have a little bit more autonomy and, and control over their own labor so that they can experiment with non, you know, capitalist innovations or developments of this? Is it like hoping for a fundamental collapse of the entire ecosystem? Is it, Hope is it like taking advantage of any openings, or is, is it something that mixes all of this on the, uh, at once? Like, what do you all think? I, I regret to inform you, Ed, that the ecosystem is already 
going under total collapse. So <laughs> I keep thinking that, and then and our, you know, I keep thinking that but, in but terms it ain't of the technological with, ecosystem, it's, yeah. the, it's the environmental ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The climate <laughs> dreaded me jumping up and down now, but um, it's just like the. It just feels like it's a never. Like part of the problem is that trends that aren't inherently sustainable or maybe relations or dynamics that are inherently sustainable just have so much capital behind them that they don't ever burst and end, you know? And then they end up in one way or another being sustained just by the ongoing bubbles everywhere else in the economy. So I don't, I also wonder, like, you know, we all talk about the bubbles and the crypto bubbles, and I think that the bubbles are a key part of obscuring the development of useful, socially useful technologies in these spaces, right? But when, like, does, do the bubbles have to burst and then, and, and cause pain to, to everybody before they get developed? Or is there actual space for like interesting projects to, to flourish maybe and then experiment with that? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of useful projects that are going on right now that are probably just not getting much funding and we just don't really hear about. It, and maybe we'll just die off because of that. Just a shame. I do think, yeah, I think the, the bubble hopefully will burst or like shrink at some point. Do bubbles shrink? I don't know if that metaphor works, but like it's just late a little, you know, <laughs> it does seem a little bit like too much, like things are happening too fast. There's too much like stupid stuff being made. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you know, maybe another, another way of thinking about it is that like the bubble is an expression of something else, like stuff happening in the real economy. And so as much as we're, as much as it is interesting and useful to talk about what's going on in this like speculative financial space, we should also be, you know, keeping our eyes on what's happening in the real economy and specifically the labor struggles that have been happening this year. I think I'm actually pretty, you know, optimistic and like energized by all of the labor activity that's been happening because after all, you know, what is the primary engine for ensuring that capital is not just like dominating everything. Well, it is labor, right? And so if we want to make sure that there isn't too much speculative capital, like, well, well, one way is through the power of the labor movement to prevent this much capital from accumulating in the first place, to push forward political changes that will expropriate this capital. Um, and I think that there is... I don't know. There's a lot that could happen in that realm that hasn't happened yet and maybe won't happen, but I think we should definitely like hope that will happen. And if it does, then it's really hard to say what will happen in terms of like the, the downstream effects from that. But I, you know, I think this is something where there's definitely a lot of potential for interesting things to occur. If, you know, the amount of like actual capital that's just like sloshing around gets reduced through other means that have to do with you know, expropriating it or like just workers clawing back a little bit more than what they're getting. So I think, yeah, we should, uh, you know, going into 2022, let's, let's hope that there's more militant labor activity um, and then other, you know, wh whatever sort of acts people can come up with to expropriate capital from capitalists. Fingers crossed. I completely agree. Of course, obviously, <laughs> but, but no, I, I mean, I think the, that is that is the way out is is you know through militant labor struggle and I mean that is the only um, counterbalance to capital is labor right uh, like it has to be that way and at the same time capital knows that and I think capital is also becoming you know uh, uh, much much more acutely aware of uh, of their position and frightened of that as well which is why we see you know a lot of you know, pretty mask off 
on, on one hand, like attempts to suppress labor, all manner of ways to, you know, remind labor that they need capital to survive. Right. Um, whether, you know, it's all the, you know, oh, people just don't want to work anymore. You know, all that kind of bullshit around recreating the reserve army of labor and keeping them down, keeping them suppressed, keeping them exploited, keeping them as Graeber talks about in, you know, in terms of bullshit jobs, right? Like tied to the machine that at once alienates them, um, while also making them completely dependent upon it. Um, and on the, on the flip side of that as well, you know, it, you know, we, we joked in the cold open about like, oh, well, if we had a startup that was combating wage theft, but, you know, actually it was about stealing wages from companies. But, you know, it's also been no surprise as well that we have seen, and we've briefly talked about on TMK, like some of these examples around like venture capitalists actually posing like, here's how, a, uh, you know, DAOs could be used uh, for like uh, labor organizing, right? It's, you know, we're disrupting the union um, by having DAOs instead, beyond being a an obviously like just kind of inane um, misunderstanding of of what labor struggle means, that's kind of not the point. I think the point here is that it's another way that venture capitalists are looking to like how can we capture the you know the labor organizing space, right? Like how can we have a say in what labor struggle looks like and ensure that it happens. Um, through the, you know, through our technologies or in the way that we want it to. And I, I think we should read that as, you know, capital and especially venture capital, uh, you know, recognizing the power of labor and preemptively trying to, um, to, to smother it, right? Preemptively trying to capture it, uh, to, to redirect it in other ways that are not actually, uh, challenging the fundamental power structures in, in any, in any serious way. Yeah. And I think this is, there's something similar in how, um, a, like capital is really good co-opting the language of progressive movements and just turning it into something completely unmoored from reality, just something completely like discursive and rhetorical. And so there's all the stuff around like identity and how, you know, Uber is, uh, cares about whatever, like Black Lives Matter and like stopping Asian hate or whatever. And there, I think there's, there's something similar going on there where it's very easy for capital to adopt this language of decentralization or fighting oppression or empowering people, um, because they know it's what people want. And I think this gap between the rhetoric and the reality is, <laughs> you know, unfortunately something that we're stuck with. I think, I think it's like the fact that the world has gotten so much worse for so many people. It means people are crying out for solutions. They, they, they want this stuff and corporations recognize that and they are very shrewd and they're very good at using this language to try to get people on board, even though it's not actually something they have any intention or ability to address. And I think this is just like the kind of weird uncanny valley we live in where everyone is talking about ending poverty and like empowering people and fighting oppression um, and like, I don't know, helping workers and whatever. And it's like, no one's actually doing it. And yeah, this is just the, the kind of like neoliberal hellscape we're stuck in, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, 
I, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap us up by saying that I, I remember, you know, like a few years ago, there is all the discussions, especially, you know, amongst the left around like accelerationism, right? And like, like that was the kind of, you know, there, there, there are a lot of debates around accelerationism, you know, oh, can, can we just put pedal to the metal? Uh, and, and like exact, like, you know, intensify the internal contradictions of capital until the whole thing just rattles so hard that it falls apart. Uh, I, I think what we are living in though is like actually existing accelerationism, right? Like this is what accelerationism looks like, uh, is it looks like, you know, all of this inane, uh, like just, just obviously stupid, you know, grifting and, you know, vaporware all in the, you know, quote unquote innovation. Like that's, that's what accelerationism looks like. And, and I don't see it. You know, we talk about the bubbles, right? You know, we, we were like pointing to these ever inflating bubbles and being like, somebody's got to do something about this. Can't you all see what's happening? What I think this has proven is that we cannot rely on capital to just de like self-destruct, right? We can't rely on capital to, uh, you know, inflate itself so much that it just burst. And then suddenly, you know, it's gone. And then we pick up the pieces and we build something new. Like it has to be this active movement. It has to be, you know, uh, it has to be a, a struggle. It has to be militant labor action against capital. Like capital, de deconstructing capital requires actively doing so, not passively sitting by and hoping that it will accelerate itself into a brick wall. And I, I hope that is like, I hope that's the, the, you know, the, the, when we're looking back on 2022, I hope that's the, the theme that we come up with, right? I hope that's what we're kind of doing a retrospective of in a year is just like, damn, all this labor stuff really popped off and, 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 and you know, people really said enough is enough. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the reins were put back on capital, uh, and, 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 you know, I hope so. I, I truly hope so because it's like it is the only way forward. It's all we have. It's all we have left to do. I don't think that we can just kind of stand by and hope that it happens and, you know, maybe get some good, some good quote tweets in during it, you know, and, and feel good dunking on the stupid shit, you know, like it, ha it has to be actively deconstructed. It won't just accelerate itself to pieces. Fingers crossed. But it doesn't hurt to pray in the meantime, if that also is something no. you want to do while organizing towards it. The slogan for 2022 is the Luddites were right. It's time to bring yeah. them back. So. Yeah, it is. It is. On that bombshell... I want to thank you, Wendy, very much for joining us to ring in the new year, to do a retrospective on last year. Um, what would you like to plug? Where can people find you? Where can they find your work? Um, give, give the people what they need. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thanks for having me. I have nothing new to plug. There's just my book, which has been out for almost two years now. Oh my God. Um, but if people want a Luddites were right t-shirt, you can get it from the TMK store. Uh, on bonfire and yes there is a photo of me wearing that in front of the uber office which was actually quite difficult to take but anyway um, it, it exists <laughs> so yeah if you want this t-shirt you can get it it's available 
Um, it looks great. Where It's great for parties when parties yeah. are possible again. <laughs> yeah, and I right. will say the idea for the Luddites Were Right t-shirt was all windy. That Windy came up with that idea. So thank you very much for that. Uh, awesome. Well, And thank you all for listening. Thank you all for sticking with us on TMK. Um, and you can find us at patreon.com slash thismachinekills for more premium episodes every single week in addition to a very large and continually growing back catalog of stuff uh, that, you know, I, I, I will say uh, most of it has held up quite well. So, you know, give it, give it, a, give it a go. Um, check out that back catalog on Patreon. It's so good that we've got the fucking venture capitalists shouting it out in their podcast. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Jason Calacanis? I see you. I see you seeing us. <laughs> you know, we have that $500 tier on our Patreon level just for you, my man. So. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. If you really want to hear the juicy shit that we talk about you you gotta subscribe at the 500 dollars level he's already subscribed put your money where your mouth is uh and also shout out to jeremy as well who is um you know uh going through and remastering some of our classic episodes from the early days of tmk where we uh, uh did not know anything about recording good <laughs> audio and, and and doing sound production but now now we got that shit on the uh you know in the bank and so uh jeremy is going back and and uh re mastering some of those episodes to make them really crispy and as listenable as possible so uh, check that out as well so with that um, I will leave it there and we'll see y'all either on the Patreon feed later this week or next week for more later adios
kill.